Well, here in Mark 7, we've got a, an account of the Lord's conflict with the, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were really a, a very small group. There probably were not even 5,000 of them in, uh, in the whole of Israel. And so you wonder why the Gospel records, which are obviously a, an edited um, account of three and a half years of, of Christ's life, why they give so much emphasis to all this conflict with the scribes and Pharisees. I suppose you could argue that, well, it was because it was them that led Jesus to his death, uh, ultimately. Well, yes, but why? Uh, I mean, the, the amount of verses in each of the Gospels that, that are taken up with this controversy uh, just seems disproportionate at first blush. But I, I, I remember years ago thinking about that question and thinking, well, I'm not a Pharisee, I'm not a legalist, neither are most of the people that I know in the body of Christ. Um, you know, sort of, what's the point of all this? Yes, we know they were a bad lot, and yes, they were legalists and literalists and the rest of it. That's not me, that's not most people. Why do we have to keep on being reminded? And over the years I've come to realize that we are all legalists, that legalism is our default position. And I used to think that um, no, it's just what some extreme religious people kind of get into over a period of years and uh, existence within those kind of uh, environments. But no, it's actually our default position. Now, I think Jesus brings that out in uh, verse 8. He says, you lay aside or you push away from yourself the commandment of God so that you can hold the tradition of men like the washing of pots and cups. Verse 9, you reject the commandment of God so that you may keep your own tradition. Now they weren't rejecting God's commandments in order to have moral anarchy, whereby I'm free to do what I want. No, they were rejecting uh, his commandments so that they might keep the commandments of men, which were actually even more, uh, far more, let's say, uh, they were far more uh, burdensome than the commandments of God. The point is, they didn't want to live by one set of laws, so therefore they shifted over to another set of laws. And uh, you actually got this a few times in the Old Testament, where God laments how his people rejected his laws in order to follow the, the tradition and the laws of the gods around them. Now those gods and those idols, they all had their set of laws and statutes, etc. They also weren't just allowing anarchy, believe what you will and do as you wish. It's as if we are built, really, to fit into a, a regime of, of thought uh, and, uh, and behavior. And it's either God's way or other ways. And legalism is therefore, as I say, part of the structure of our being. Uh, time and again I find this with newly baptized converts in our, uh, in our church, in our ecclesia. They always want a black and white answer. Is it a sin to have a drink now and again? Is it a sin to, to smoke? Is it a sin to do this, to do that, the other? They want to come out of the encounter with, with me to come away from the question with a black or white answer. And they don't like it, but I say, ah, it's, it's, it depends, it's, yeah, there's a context. And yeah, that's why the, the black and white churches who sort of read the riot act and say, this is 
okay, and that's a sin, and that's good, and that's bad. Oh, you know, people love it. They just love it. Because that's how we are. That's actually what we want. To live by principle is so much more difficult. And as he goes on here in Mark 7 to explain, that the essence is not the external, but the, the case of the human heart. That is, uh, that's what's so crucial. Now, that is so much more demanding. Just tell me, I've got to eat. Uh, I've got to uh, eat clean food and wash my hands before I eat, uh, and it doesn't matter what I think in my heart. Sure, that's the easy way. That is the easy way. And so, the way of legalism is, in a sense, the easy way. In spiritual terms, it's it's a chickening out. It's it's just taking the easy way, and the the hard way is the way of the heart. Now, this whole thing about we have the commandment of God or the commandment of men, the tradition of God or the tradition of, of, of men as it were uh, to follow and these Pharisees pushed away or uh, lay aside the AV says the, uh, the commandment of God so that they might keep the tradition of men um, it, it reminds me of how in Romans 6 Paul says that we are slaves we're slaves either way we are slaves to sin or we are slaves to, to Jesus righteousness so in one sense looking at it rather negatively I suppose it's slavery either way now that I think needs to just be borne in mind because we all have I think the impression or the the assumption that actually I am a very liberal minded person that I'm a very eclectic and very open minded and uh, uh, no, I, I'm not in service to anyone, and I do what I want to do, and I think and believe what I want to believe, and I, I'm so independent. And uh, in a sense, that's right that we should try to be like that, but the bottom line is that we are terrible creatures of habit. We're pathetic creatures of habit. Looking at us as human beings from outside ourselves, like if, let's say, you're the family dog, or the family cat, or whatever, and looking at all the mum and dad and the kids, and, and how they, how they just exist day by day, every day, day in, day out. You know, it must be laughable. These people are so habitual; they're so predictable, and that's us. We we we, we search for freedom, and we love the idea of freedom, but actually we can't cope with it. The whole structure of our minds at this time is just not able to cope with it. And uh, that's why if, if you say to people, okay, let's imagine that you're free to do exactly what you want. They still don't find happiness. They can't cope with it. They try to put their conscience, their moral conscience to sleep, do exactly what they want, and they're still not happy. This is exactly what Paul says. You, are, you end up serving yourself, slave to sin. You're in slavery. And of course, the, the great paradox is that the only ultimate freedom is in slavery to Jesus. And then we shall be made free. And when in Romans 8, Paul talks right on in that context and talking about a change of masters in Romans 6, he, he talks in Romans 8 about the glorious liberty of the children of God, which is yet to come. So the glorious freedom of God's dear children is the kingdom age. That 
in one sense, is the true freedom. And yet we get there by recognizing that it's slavery, uh, it's fitting into the mold of this world and myself and sin, or to that of God. And by going God's way, we find, will find, ultimately, that true freedom. Now, you see how they so wanted to, to justify what they wanted to do by uh, twisting their way around God's law in verse 10 and 11. They said that there was this idea of korban, or a gift, whereby you didn't have to look after your mum and dad when they got old. You could say that, uh, no, I, I'm going to, uh, whatever I will spend looking after them, I'll give to the temple. And then you're free. Or you could do it whereby you said, okay, well, uh, such and such bit of property that belonged to mum and dad, when they die, that will go to the temple. And I'm free from having to look after them. So they were getting round looking after their parents by basically um, some legalistic, casuistic kind of way. But... Jesus says in verse 10 that God says, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever curses father or mother, let him die the death. And you think, wow, that's a little, it's getting a little bit heavy here, that if you uh, curse your father or mother, you must die the death. But, well, this is not looking after your mum and dad in their old age. Uh, is that really worthy of death? Is that cursing your father or mother? No. That's what we think. And so you come up against a, a profound fact that sins of omission are counted as sins of commission. Like Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, you hate your brother, you've killed him. That hate is murder. Bad thinking about your brother is murder. That's what he says. Try and twist and squeeze and squiggle around it as you wish, but that's what he said. And it's the same here. The sin of omission, to not look after your mum and dad, is seen by him as cursing them and worthy of dying the death. Even if, even if, you do make some kind of financial sacrifice. Now, lack of respect for parents is, I think, uh, something we could uh, underline a little bit as a, one of the many besetting sins of uh, of our age in this totally selfish spirit of society which is upon us I, I think wherever we live in the 21st century but my, my wider point is that sins of omission which you know, everybody commits particularly in these days when, when it's quite common to not live very near your parents maybe you've emigrated to another country or you've migrated to another town or city quite a way away from them and there you are, you're working, working, working okay, yeah, maybe an odd phone call now and again uh, and we may think, yeah, well that's life that's what everyone does but you've got to be really careful that that sin of omission could actually be seen as a cursing father or mother and worthy of dying the death now, let's say I'm making a wider point here that we need to search our lives very carefully in this area of sin of omission because we can easily get the idea that sin is simply sin of commission and that therefore I've just got to keep my nose clean, don't commit adultery uh, don't uh, 
don't steal anything. Be basically honest and, you know, not be a bad guy, um, etc. Help a guy change his, change his wheel on the road if, if he needs it. Um, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and Yeah, okay. And so I'm, okay, yeah, we're all sinners, blah, blah. But, you know, I'm not a bad bloke. Uh, th- this is, a, I think, a really big problem because we are not perceiving that what we omit to do is counted also as sin and is sin. That if we shut our eyes to any human need because we are busy dashing around in our lives, what difference is there to what Jesus was getting at in the parable of the Good Samaritan, those who pass by on the other side of the road, too caught up with their religion, with their cleanliness, with their ideas of things, and just left the, the man there. Now he talks in verse 13 about how their tradition made the word of God of no effect. And the intention of God's word is, in a sense, to, to hurt uh, in a good sense the intention of God's word is to get us to go against the grain of our nature it, it's not there to just uh, reinforce us in our own personality types and our own decisions that we might naturally want to take anyway like you know go and preach in uh, I don't know on some Mediterranean island or some Caribbean uh, beach or something oh sure yeah I'll, I'll obey the gospel to take the gospel into all the world I'll go and sit there and sure might uh, just leave a couple of tracks lying around you know we're not called to simply uh, confirm ourselves as we are we are called to transformation and we are called to radical change we are called to pick up a cross and follow Jesus as a criminal in his last walk to the cross let's, let's never forget that and yet tradition, especially religious tradition, can rob God's word of its real power. Uh, and it's very subtle because we, we, when it comes to religious things, we tend to think, oh yeah, but I am sort of serving God. I'm, you know, I'm going along the way that the community of believers I belong to, in this case the synagogue, uh, thought that I think that I should behave, and yes, I'm doing the right thing, and da-di-da, when actually it's all very convenient for us. Reminds me of how David says that business about Ornan's threshing floor and, and uh, the, the oxen for sacrifice. He says, look, I'm not going to offer God a sacrifice of that which costs me nothing. And it's th- the same here, I think, that God's word, or the word of God, not just the Bible, it could, he could have in mind the gospel, um, is made powerless, is robbed of its power by human religious tradition. Because tradition is what's passed on, whereas God's word is intended to dynamically change us. That's the idea that we are on a constant journey, not stuck in the rut of tradition. And yet who likes really moving on? Who likes being challenged? Who likes being criticized? Who likes having to shed their beloved ideas and their pet theories and the rest of it and their secret habits, etc.? Who likes to do that? Nobody. We'd far rather stay in the rut of tradition. And this, I think, is the problem with a lot of 
uh, Protestant Christianity, including our, our own uh, particular part of it, uh, the idea is that here's a statement of faith, here's a set of traditions that we have inherited, uh, and some what you need to do is to hold that to the end of your days and pass it on to someone else. I, I was told that at my own baptism. Um, and yes, of course, we are to hold the gospel. No one is saying that we should become atheists or throw it all away or you know, join the Muslims or whatever. But we also are called to change. And we don't like change. And that's why even the most radical of us will prefer to stick with tradition, particularly religious tradition, because it makes you feel good. So then, Jesus um, goes on to emphasize labor, this point really, that you can't get defiled by having dirty hands. That's irrelevant. The real problem is from within. We use these verses quite rightly to try to persuade people to stop believing that sin comes from some cosmic being outside of them that they're calling Satan or whatever but that the real arena of spiritual conflict is within the human heart and it is what comes out of us out of our mind our heart which is the problem and that there is a, a the source of human sin in this sense is within and the disciples really didn't get it and verse 18 he was surprised are you so without understanding also? I think you see there, incidentally, a window into the humanity of the Lord, that he was kind of surprised. I think he, he thought better of them. Just uh, yesterday we read Mark 6, um, that he, was, he marveled, verse 6 of Mark 6, because of their unbelief in Nazareth. He was really surprised. He, he hoped more of them. And he, with this matter, he really was surprised the disciples didn't get it. And we may say, oh yeah, well we get it because we don't believe that you can get defiled by an external cosmic being called Satan and yet I wonder if we do get it I wonder if we really do face up to the fact that the human heart, the human mind is the crucial problem in other words, that spiritual mindedness is the absolute essence is the absolute essence of being a Christian, of following Jesus. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. It is not simply about the externalities, be it of washing before you, you have a meal, be it of going to the meeting, going to church, uh, even publicly reading the Bible. It is about what goes on within you. It is as some, somebody put it, who you are when nobody's looking. You know, when you are lying awake at night with your eye focused on the, uh, the lamp socket above you, or the chandelier or whatever it is above you, what are you thinking? As you walk down the street, what are you thinking? Where is your heart? And that is what nobody knows apart from God and to a lesser extent to yourself but that is the essence not the externality but what is going on within the human mind now I want to uh, just uh, develop slightly on a different, uh, different tangent now uh, I said when I'm talking about Mark 6 that 
Mark's Gospel, it seems, was written partly to counter the idea that Jesus was the divine man. The idea that came to its, its kind of term in the, in the Trinity idea. And I said that he emphasizes the humanity of Jesus and that he seems to record what I called unexpected outcomes, where Jesus was somewhat surprised and things didn't quite go as he expected. We saw in Mark 6, for example, that Jesus says, look, we need to get away somewhere, deserted. Let's go to a deserted place because there's too many people coming and going and you've just come back from your preaching expedition and I need to talk to you quietly and privately. So he gets them in the boat and they sail off to a deserted place but they get there and all the people have run around the lake from where they'd been before and were there waiting for them and it's a bit like Jesus is um, well <laughs> upstaged a bit it's, it's a bit as if uh, what he his plan his intention didn't quite happen as he thought it would you've got another one here in verse 24 he didn't want anyone to know that he was in the house but he could not be hid so it's all emphasizing this and of course it came to, to the final crisis on the cross my god why have you forsaken me or how have you entangled me reading sabachthani there as entangled uh, alluding I think without question to the, the ram entangled in the thicket when Abraham offered Isaac as if Jesus is saying but I thought I was Isaac in all this that I'd be, I'd be gotten out of the cross at the last minute let this cup pass from me and yet he, he realizes that he is in fact not Isaac but is the ram entangled and so this is just a great window into his humanity and every time that we struggle mentally with not understanding what's going on in our own lives and the lives of those we love in whatever context we are we do suffer from this lack of t having the total picture and expectations that are dashed and unexpected outcomes uh, of uh, our decisions and Jesus was of our nature and he knows even that we are not alone because really and truly he is with us exactly because he was so human now his identity with people I think is brought out in the way that he heals in 32 and 33 this one who is deaf and who has a speech impediment verse 33 Jesus put his fingers into his ears and he spat and touched his tongue. He mixes his saliva with the saliva of the man. And I think that was related to the man's speech problem. He's saying, my saliva is now linked with you. And when he's done that, he prays that uh, God will heal the man. But there's two halves really to verse 33 he put his fingers into his ears and then he spits and puts his saliva on the man's tongue he put his fingers into his ears I think that Jesus did that to himself not into the man's ears but into his own ears as if he's saying you're deaf and you've got a speech problem okay I am totally with you. You're deaf, I'm deaf. 
you've got a speech problem, okay, your saliva is mine, mine is yours. We're together. And then he prays to God, in 34, and says, be opened. And his ears were opened. That's what I uh, suggest for time's running out, but uh, for various uh, reasons, I suggest that that is what's happening here. Um, basically, uh, there in 33, when he puts his fingers into his ears and then he spits and puts his saliva on the man's tongue, um, the act of putting his saliva on the man's tongue is clearly an act of identification that my um, my tongue is uh, my tongue and my saliva are yours you've got a speech problem okay let my tongue and my saliva be yours and so I would say in, in terms of uh, semantics the first half of the verse where he puts his fingers into his ears is going to be the same that if that's what he wanted to do in relation to the man's speech he would have also wanted to do the same with the hearing his idea was your ears are my ears and he does that, I suppose he could have put his physical ear next to the man's physical ear, but he does it in another way. He uh, puts his fingers into his own ears to act like he's deaf. And then, totally identified with the man, verse 34, he looks up to heaven. Marvellous how he could pray to his father with eyes open, looking up to heaven. Uh, no barrier between God and Jesus. Uh, he sighs, I think in prayer, and says to the man be opened I think that's a lovely picture of his identity with us and it also fits in if what I've suggested about putting his fingers in his own ears is correct it fits in with a, a truly enigmatic verse in one of the servant songs in Isaiah where it is said who is deaf as my servant and who is blind like my servant Jesus, in that sense, was as deaf and as blind and as tongue-tied as us. It's this total identity between him and us. And we respond to that by being baptized. Um, that we accept that truth and we, therefore, accept his identification with us and make it uh, mutual by identifying ourselves with him, with his death and resurrection. So he sighed in his prayer, and uh, Hebrews 5 talks about how Jesus groaned and sighed um, in, his, in Gethsemane and in his intercession for us on the cross. He got the same idea in Romans 8, where Paul says that even now, Jesus is sighing, is groaning for us, with groanings that cannot be uttered in heaven itself. The point is, the intensity of prayer for others that Jesus had in his mortal life is what he had on the cross and it is what he has today Jesus is truly the same yesterday, today and forever now let's remember that in our prayers to just remember that we have a passionate intercessor and we're not just rattling off words into the darkness throwing words out into the wind hoping that I don't know, God might hear one or two of them. In all seriousness, our words are not only the words of our prayers, but our whole unspoken uh, positions and 
earnest desires, especially, I think, above all for salvation and for forgiveness, for reconciliation with the Father. But that is very much in the heart of Jesus, and he is right now passionately imploring God with the same groanings, with the same sighings that he had as he identified with this ill man and as he had when he prayed on the cross and in Gethsemane. That same intensity is there. And he is an active Lord. It's not as if he's closed the books and is looking somewhere else and will come again to this earth and open the books and see how we got on. No, he is passionately with us passionately this moment the Jesus who prayed passionately in Gethsemane and for us on the cross is the very same Jesus who is doing exactly the same for us today we with whom he is so willingly and eagerly identified <laughs>